Well, Happy New Year again, and that is uh, really the topic of the sermon today is happiness. Raise your hand if you'd like uh, to be happy this year. Well, that's good. How honest of you. Um, Sometimes as mature Christians, we're afraid to admit that we want to be happy. Somehow evangelicalism has convinced us that happiness is shallow and Mature Christian people should be interested in uh, deeper things like joy. Yes, joy. As if joy, when did joy and happiness become antonyms? Uh, they're in the same word family. They're, they're synonyms. I guess maybe what we're afraid of is we realize, as Matt shared with us this morning with the rope, that short-term happiness the things that make us happy in that little blue section of the rope disappoint and let us down and it's fleeting and temporary and your favorite team won their bowl game maybe and you're already thinking about next year because you can't even enjoy the win. Or you went to go see the new Star Wars movie which you've waited over 10 years because the prequels don't count. And you're, you came out of the theater and you can't even enjoy the movie you just saw. You, you're, when's the next one come out? My sister and brother-in-law blessed my family last year with tickets to Disneyland. It's not really something we can spend money on for a family of six. You have to take out a second mortgage now to go to Disneyland, which wasn't the case when I was growing up. You know, we, it, was, uh, it was just a fun place to go. It wasn't going to uh, secular humanism heaven, which I guess is why the tickets are so expensive. We just want to go and enjoy the day. For some people, this is life, and so they're willing to uh, finance their entire future on a day at the park. But we enjoyed our time, and you realize, hey, if you got these tickets, you can pay a little extra and bump them up to uh, annual passes. So we've been enjoying these annual passes going down every once a month, every other month. But you know that the more you go, there's the law of diminishing returns. I understand uh, from other family members we know who live near Disneyland that often when they say, let's go to Disneyland, their kids say, oh man, Disneyland again? And you realize even the happiest place on earth can't deliver all the time. And such is life. We're pursuing happiness, but it's so elusive, and when we find it, it seems to be gone moments later. The Donnells are brimming with happiness. Wait till Avonlea turns two. It's a different kind of happiness. <laughs> right? Such is life. And so when I ask who would like happiness in 2016... We're not sure we're supposed to answer yes to that question because we've been trained as evangelicals that often the pursuit of happiness can lead to sin. And that's certainly what happened in David's life. We saw that last week. I think we can surmise that David was unhappy and thought that a night with Bathsheba would solve his problems. And our pursuit of happiness is tainted by sin such that we will completely disregard God's warnings and convince ourselves that the very thing that God said would bring death and misery and unhappiness, to say the least, becomes the very thing we're convinced 
is our ticket to happiness. And the more deluded we become in our sin, um, the more we chase after and with more vigor we chase after things in this world that can't possibly deliver the kind of happiness that we're looking for. So is the answer to not pursue happiness? I believe that's a fool's errand. What I'm learning as a pastor in my study of the Bible in discipling and counseling people is that everybody is looking for happiness all the time. It's what it means to be human. It's our chief motivator. We don't sing a lot of songs about happiness. Just the one, trust and obey, for there's no better way than to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And because we sing that in Sunday school to the kids, perhaps we've decided that happiness is a childlike pursuit. And yet, I think the older I get in my faith, and I I believe you'll agree with me as you become older, you realize the simplest truths of the faith are the most powerful. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Don't ever think you've outgrown that song. What could be better than to be to know that Jesus loves you? Yeah, people searching to be loved because that will bring happiness. Happiness. So you want to understand people, understand that they're searching for happiness. When people come in to talk to me in counseling, they never say, I'm unhappy. But that's why they're coming in to talk to me. Very few people, because of our pride, will come right out and say, I'm unhappy. Sounds like a childlike tantrum. Pastor has better things to do than to help me with my unhappiness. Yet it's the number one medical complaint in our country. We don't tell our doctor I'm unhappy, though. We say I'm depressed because that's the clinical term. Or we say something's just not quite right. I can't, I can't find my passion. I can't find zeal. I can't find purpose and meaning for getting out of bed in the morning. And so we use terms like chronic fatigue and, and a host of other descriptions. But at the root of it all, people want to be happy, and they haven't been happy in a long time. And the places they used to go for happiness aren't delivering anymore. Because if it was, they wouldn't come into the doctor or the counselor or the pastor. Are you tracking with me? So is the answer to stop pursuing happiness? Again, that's a fool's errand. And as Christians, I don't know where we got this idea that God is opposed to happiness. How are we supposed to win the world for Christ if our message is trust in Jesus and be miserable like me? Being honest here. And yet, certainly, we understand there's some problem with the brand of Christianity, which I could hardly even call Christianity, which is promising this happy, clappy life. God wants you to have your best life right now, your happiest life right now. Come to Jesus, and He'll give you health, wealth, and prosperity, and happiness. What an insult to our brothers and sisters in Christ, suffering persecution around the world, and famine, and disease. 
wouldn't dare preach that gospel to them. And so, just because we live in an affluent society doesn't mean we should be preaching such a gospel to people because it fills seats. That's not the message of the Bible. So we know that's not the gospel. And yet, I always kind of hate this term, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's kind of morbid, huh? Um, especially after you just announced a baby's born. But just because happiness is abused and the pursuit of happiness is abused doesn't mean that happiness doesn't have to be the goal. Years ago, Gary Thomas wrote this book called Sacred Marriage, and for a while it became one of our favorite pre-marriage counseling books and even marital counseling books. The byline says, What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? And in his defense, he does say more than, but I think we got the idea that the goal is holiness, not happiness. Well, try preaching that in premarital counseling. Look, people, if you're looking for happiness, marriage is not for you. But if holiness is what you're after, slugging along, dealing with trials and misery, learning to find joy in complete dissatisfaction and disenlightenment, then let's write the vows. And that wasn't Gary's point. His point in the book is that people make their own personal happiness the end goal of marriage. And they think that that other person is going to be the source of that elusive happiness they've been looking for all their life. And that is way too much baggage to put on any person. No one except God himself can fill that role. And that's really the point of the sermon. So I found myself in a conundrum, especially during premarital counseling. These people are so positive and and they seem happy and they think happier days are ahead of them and yet we know the statistics. And so my job, partly as pastor, is to bring some sobriety into the premarital sessions. Not People don't go into marriage saying, you know, in five to ten years... Our goal is to make each other miserable and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees separating. If people knew that was what was going to happen, nobody would get married. And yet we see other people that seem to have navigated the choppy waters of marriage and it's enough to at least keep the dream alive. Maybe we'll be one of the lucky pair who makes it. Likewise, people have children assuming it will bring them great happiness. A lot of times people start having children because the initial happiness of marriage has started to wear off and they're thinking bring a child into the mix will fix everything. And we're all smiling. (laughs) Right? Children just amplify whatever emotions are going on at the time. And yet children are a blessing from God. They're designed to bring happiness. They should bring happiness. And they do bring happiness most of the time. 
So what's going on here, and how should we consider happiness biblically? And does the Bible even talk about happiness? And when I say, open your Bibles to the most famous passage on happiness, most of us would just... We don't want to look stupid in front of everyone, but is there a passage on happiness that I don't know about? In fact, most of our translations avoid using the word happy altogether in the Bible. And yet, if we're all pursuing happiness, and happiness is such an important topic, and the Bible speaks with ultimate authority on every topic, surely it must speak on this topic. I understand in in counseling what makes most people unhappy is unmet expectations. They think life should be coming in up here, it's coming in down here, and the further that gap, the more the unhappiness. And so they believe the solution is to change their circumstances. Sadly, our greatest happiness is designed by God to be in relationship. Relationship with God is the source of our greatest happiness. And relationship with others is designed to bring great happiness. But when we become convinced that this person who's supposed to bring me happiness isn't, then the ugliness really begins. What am I going to do? Especially as a Christian, you know it's wrong to abandon your spouse or to abandon your children. It's unhealthy to hop from church to church to church to church to church, job to job to job to job to job, friend to friend to friend to friend to friend, every time you start to feel unhappy. You know the answer is I'm supposed to hunker down. But even that sounds like unhappiness. I guess I'll just muddle through and hope for a ray of sunshine. So then, what will we say about happiness? There weren't a lot of resources out there on happiness. And the way God brought a great resource into my life, in His providence, it came at just the right time when my thinking was beginning to crystallize on this subject. And I knew something was amiss in the way I viewed happiness. It's kind of funny how this book by Randy Alcorn came into my possession. Randy Alcorn's best known for his book on heaven, which is even thicker than this one. Randy Alcorn doesn't take anything lightly. He's going to study and study and study everything the Bible has to say on the topic and and much of what the great Christian thinkers in history have to say on the topic. The book on heaven is the seminal book on heaven. People want to know more about heaven other than going to God's Word. We would say, get Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. And so, I was excited when I saw he'd written a book on happiness. I knew he would give the same attention to this subject that he did to heaven. If you know Dennis Osmussen, Dennis is one of our deacons, he, um, he collects the um, little coupons they give you when you go to Family Christian Bookstore and buy things. And then when you fill up your card, the little card's worth $5 off on your next purchase. He once gave me a stack of these cards like this. It was a, I think there was like over $100 worth of 
cards there. And he said, I just want to give you this, and, and you could figure out how to use it for the church. And I'm like, I don't know what to, to do with all of this. Um, and when you're busy, you say, okay, I'm going to put that in my file drawer right there, and I'll think about it later. And that was three years ago. Recently, Dennis has had some health issues, and when I was praying for him, God brought to mind these cards. And I said, well, I'm going to be down in Lancaster. There's where there's a family Christian store. I'm going to go redeem the cards. Maybe I'll find some nice Christmas presents for the staff or the elders or some kind of resource. I don't know. So I go down there, and uh, much to my dismay, the family Christian bookstore was filled with a lot of things that I would hardly even call Christian the books, that is. The little, like, wall art, that's pretty cool. And they've got a lot of movies, uh, family Christian movies, who knows. You really have to watch them all to find out whether or not they're Christian. Of course, by that time, you've already purchased it and unwrapped it. So, But the book section was the smallest section in the entire store. And the books that I would consider Christian was an even smaller sliver of the book section. I was a little disheartened, and I'm like, well, they have to stay open, so they have to sell what people buy. And I guess this is what people buy. But then I saw this book, and it's, I think it's a really poorly written cover. It looks like it's for women. And... Fair or unfair, I would say culturally, if you said, who has a problem with happiness more, men or women? Most people would say women. More discontentment. More trips to the doctor for depression. Maybe we could chalk that up to the hormones of, of motherhood. Certainly that's part of the answer. But this book wasn't screaming at me as a man by this teal blue with pink trees book, but it was the name Randy Alcorn and the fact that I've been thinking so much about happiness recently that made me want to buy it. I bought one for myself and one for Craig and one for Nathan because I know that we do the bulk of the counseling in the church, and this is the bulk of our counseling. Again, whether or not people want to admit it, they come in when they're unhappy. Who's going to come in for counseling when they're happy? Pastor, I'd really like to talk. I, are you unhappy? Oh, no, I am just out of this world happy. You know, and I think that's a problem. <laughs> I need to be somber like the rest of the Christians. So, we ask in counseling often, why are you here, what do you think the problem is, and what do you think the solution is? And that tells you just about everything you need to know, because it tells you what the person thinks is missing from their life. And if they had that in their life, that would restore their happiness. And until they get that thing, they're just not going to be happy, they think. And so the goal of Christian discipleship counseling is to help people to fill in that blank with the things that God fills in that blank with, namely Himself. Our problems arise when we say, I can't be happy unless I have blank. And blank isn't the word Jesus. Everything else becomes idolatry. If I don't get blank, I will be unhappy. Fill in your favorite idol. 
I will sin if I don't get blank. Or I will sin in order to get blank. Now, nobody comes in and says that. You know, if I don't get this thing, I'm going to go out and sin. That if you want to understand human nature, think about happiness. That'll tell you all that you need to know. And I was so relieved as I started to read this book over the break that all the great Christian thinkers down through the age have written about happiness and have said, this is the chief motivator of man. I said, I I thought the goal of the Christian life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Yes, and when you realize that glorifying God means being happy in Him, then you will pursue God in order to be happy, and that will bring Him glory. As John Piper says, glorify God by enjoying Him forever. So this isn't a new concept. I just think it's been hidden in the church because we live in a materialistic, I-need-to-be-happy-right-now instant gratification culture, and we know that's wrong. But being happy isn't wrong. I was so relieved to find out that God wants me to be happy in the right things and for the right reasons. Listen to Augustine. Every man whatsoever his condition desires to be happy. For who wishes anything for any other reason that he may become happy? Now, you may say you have other reasons for doing the things that you do, but if you keep digging down deep enough and peeling back the layers, you're doing them because you think it will bring you happiness. Even people who say, I'm doing this because I don't want to be happy, think that somehow sacrificing will make me better than other people, which will make me feel happy about myself. There are those who are the Stoics in life, the the, uh, monk type of people that think to avoid happiness, I need to go sequester myself, deny myself all the good things that God has provided in this world. Of course, that's not how Jesus lived his life for us. In fact, when he came, he was accused of, by the Pharisees of being, as the King James calls it, a wine-bibber, teetotaler. And he told them, and I'll paraphrase, look, if I had come dour, you would have said, what a killjoy. And if I come to celebrate, you say, oh, party animal. Can't make you guys happy. Augustine goes on to say, There is no man who does not desire this, and each one desires it with such earnestness that he prefers it to all other things. Whoever, in fact, desires other things desires them for this end alone. Again, you may say that happiness isn't your goal, but whatever you tell me your goal is, I'm convinced that you think that will bring you happiness. That's why you're pursuing it. Blaise Pascal, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Jonathan Edwards, considered the greatest American theologian all time. 
There is no man upon the earth who isn't earnestly seeking after happiness, and it appears abundantly by the variety of ways they so vigorously seek it. Look around us. There's as many different ways to pursue happiness as there are people on the earth. Yeah, we can put them into broad categories. They will twist and turn every way, ply all instruments to make themselves happy men. Why has evangelicalism turned happiness into a forbidden word? Listen to George Whitfield, a contemporary of Jonathan Edwards, the great evangelist during the Great Awakening. Isn't it the end of religion to make men happy? And by end, he means, isn't that the point? And is it not everyone's privilege to be as happy as he can? Does Jesus want your heart only for the same end as the devil does to make you miserable? No, he only wants you to believe on him that you might be saved. This, this is all the dear Savior desires to make you happy that you may leave your sins to sit down eternally with him. There's an interesting perspective. Why do people sin? Because they believe it's going to bring them happiness. And so, yes, Jesus saves us from our sins, but what does that mean? He saves us from the misery, separation, and death that pursuing happiness apart from God must bring, inevitably brings. To be happy in Jesus is to trust and obey. The book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, the wisest man apart from Jesus Christ to ever walk the earth, wrote Ecclesiastes from the perspective of a man searching for ultimate happiness apart from God and God's revelation. It's meant to be a depressing book. I pursued happiness and in work, I pursued it in play, I pursued it in pleasure, I pursued it in relationships, I pursued it in food, in drink, in money, in building great buildings. That's Solomon's life in a nutshell. At the end of the day, he found that all was vanity, 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 all is vanity, empty, empty, all is emptiness, hollow, hollow, all hollowness, until he gets to the very last verse. So what does it all mean? What's, what's the meaning of life? Fear God and obey His commands and you'll find happiness. Trusting that the ultimate source of happiness will take care of your happiness. When did man and woman become unhappy in paradise? When they became convinced that there was something better than what they already had. We're sitting here saying, you fools, you had what I'm looking for. And yet they were tempted to believe that disobeying God and redefining reality and redefining happiness and redefining the pursuit of happiness would bring them more than what they already had. When God clearly told them it would bring nothing but death, So does the Bible speak of happiness, or is the word happiness an imposter for joy? That's our question. Because we're used to hearing this as evangelicals. I shouldn't pursue happiness, 
I should pursue joy. How many people here think our founding fathers of this country were, were pretty wise men? Godly men? What did they say? All men are endowed with certain inalienable rights among them. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of joy. The pursuit of blessedness. I mean, for such eloquent writers, half the time you have to read their documents with a dictionary and a thesaurus. Happy? We came to this new world so we could pursue happiness. You see, in our modern vernacular, happy's become something trite and shallow and fleeting. And yes, in that sense of the word, that isn't what we're after. But happiness is a, is, comes from a biblical word. The Hebrew word for happy is asher. And the Greek word for happy is makarios. And when I say go to the most famous passage on happiness in all the Bible, you don't know where to go because the King James translators didn't use the word happy, they used the word blessed, which was a synonym for happiness in their day. And we get so used to the way things read in the King James that translators are really cautious about changing up passages that are precious to us. And so Psalm 1, which sets the tone for the entire book of Psalms, all the poems and music about worshiping God and finding true happiness starts with, blessed is the man who... It's really, happy is the man. And when Jesus came and preached the most famous sermon, ever preached the Sermon on the Mount, it started with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. But it's really, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You're like, how can you be happy and mourn at the same time? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know His teachings? Does He not teach in paradoxes? Isn't that exactly the way Jesus would teach? Those who wish to find their life must lose it. Those who want to be first must be last. And those who want to be happy need to mourn. Certain kind of mourning. Boy, this opens up whole new avenues for us in our Christian walk. I am excited about this teaching, and to explore it more. You can do a word study on the word blessed in your Bible. Now, you need to know when the translators were translating Barak, which is the Hebrew word for blessed, as blessed, and when they're translating Asher, which is the Hebrew word for happy, with the word blessed. By the way, I know that bothers a lot of you that Barak means blessed. Try to get over it. God was using the word long before our president was using it. Honestly, his name's Barry. So, every Hebrew speaker would have understood Asher to mean happy. What kind of happiness? That deep-seated contentment, satisfaction, all is right 
with the world, even when the world's falling apart around you. Have you had those moments in life? They don't last very long, but they're so wonderful that you spend the rest of your days trying to get back to that moment. Amen? Those moments we've had in our life where all feels right with the world and you're completely content and satisfied and happy is just a foretaste of the happiness we will enjoy in heaven. Isn't that a wonderful thought? The worst day you ever experience on earth the worst day you ever experience on earth pales in comparison to what every day will be like in hell. But the best day you experience on earth pales in comparison to what you will experience every day in heaven. Boy, that really puts the two paths in perspective. For unbelievers, if they continue in their unbelief, the best day that they ever experienced on earth will be the closest thing they ever come to experiencing heaven. And we'll look back and go, huh, I was nothing compared to what I have now. Why was, why was I so eager to be pursuing all these things that don't satisfy, that just bring temporary happiness? Paul figured it out. To live Christ. No vowel in there. We add the vowel in our translations. To live Christ. In Philippians, he talks about the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus. That's it. Just knowing, knowing Jesus. That's the secret to life. That's the secret to happiness. Knowing Him more and more and more every day. He never disappoints. You're never bored in Him. You're never thinking, well, Jesus is pretty good, but there's got to be somebody better. He never runs out. He never disappoints. You never get to the end of Him. Everything else in this world, including our earthly relationships, which in and of themselves can be wonderful things, but not if we make them ultimate things. Please, don't do that to your spouse and your children and your friends. That is way too much baggage for people to carry. And if you think about it, it's selfish because you're using them. I demand that you make me happy all the time. And when you cease to fulfill that calling, I will discard you and find someone else to play that role. And trust me, they will fail in that role as well. That's not to say we're to look at one another and say, Honey, I have learned... Not to derive any happiness from you whatsoever. That won't work either. And you'll be sleeping on the couch. <laughs> Tools, yeah, that's probably worse than couch. I found the secret to happiness. <laughs> Don't look for it in you. That's, oh, I'm okay if you feel the same way about me. No. Our relationships are meant by God in the right context to bring us great happiness and joy. Every Hebrew speaker would understand Asher to mean happy. So when they hear, blessed is the man, they're not thinking 
Barak blessed. They're thinking Asher happy. So what's Barak blessed? In the Aaronic blessing, which you're familiar with, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Those are all in parallel. And in Hebrew poetry, when lines are in parallel like that, one line amplifies the next. It's all the same idea. What does it mean to be blessed by the Lord? That He looks upon you with favor. That He turns His face to you and you feel the warmth of His smile. What could be better in life to know that God is for you and to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? That's our reward. How many books, how many movies have been written about the son or the daughter who never heard from mom or dad, I'm proud of you or I love you or you make me smile? How many kids are struggling in life because they know deep down they disappoint their parents? Because their parents thought having these children would fill that hole in my life. They'll accomplish all the things I was never able to accomplish. I'm not really proud of my accomplishments, but I could be proud of my kids' accomplishments. Don't do that to your children. Enjoy them for who they are. People are miracles made in God's image by God to be enjoyed, and that brings great glory to God. Now, I know because of our sin, we're not always enjoyable people. You and I. And so I'm not saying ignore one another's sins and just be happy with people who are making everyone around them miserable. It's not what I'm saying. We need to go to people in love and help them turn from them, their sins and turn to God. But I am saying, and the Bible is saying, that To go around living life waiting to be happy when people change is a recipe for unhappiness. Don't root and ground your ultimate happiness in people and circumstances and things. Root and ground your ultimate happiness in the one who never changes and never disappoints and never sins. Blessing is a vehicle for happiness. When you know the Lord has blessed you, are you not happy? And when you're a blessing to other people, you can make them happy. And we bless God back by thanking Him for His blessings and praising Him for His blessings. Therefore, Psalm 1 is telling us how to be happy. And we won't find happiness walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of scoffers. This describes people who've already determined in their mind that God is not the source of happiness. So the psalmist is saying, you want to be happy, don't hang out and listen to these people's advice. There are looking for love in all the wrong places. They're looking for happiness and satisfaction in all the wrong things. And they're even sinning in their pursuit of happiness. No, but the happy man is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditates on the Word of God day and night. I want to know this God. He's a source of happiness. God, how can I be happy? God says, 
Trust me, obey me. God is perfectly happy in and of himself. The Trinity, there's perfect happiness there. Perfect contentment, perfect satisfaction with one another. God didn't make us because he was unhappy and was looking for us to fill some kind of void. He made us because he's a creative God who wishes to share his glory and happiness and goodness with others. Unhappiness then comes from the discontentment and dissatisfaction of knowing God and what He's provided for us. Unhappiness comes from the discontentment and dissatisfaction with who God is and what He's provided for us. At the turn of the century... You know, Y2K, when we thought all the computers were going to crash. The other thing that was going on was what we do at the end of every year, which is like the greatest hits of the year, award shows. But remember the year 2000, it was like that on steroids because we had to do what's the greatest of the century. And the music critics, the rock and roll critics, voted and agreed that the Rolling Stones can't get no satisfaction was the greatest rock and roll song of the century. And at the time, I was like, well, I kind of like Stairway to Heaven, and I kind of like this song or that song. Why that one? And now I get it. Because I listen to music just for the entertainment. Other people listen to music because it's their philosophy. It's where they get their answers. And that is the greatest question in life, is I'm not happy, how can I be happy? And certainly Mick Jagger tried every conceivable avenue of happiness that one can think of, and then some, because he had the ethic and the money and the opportunity to pursue happiness, and it only led him into sin and misery and despair and led him to write the song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. I try and I try and I try and I try. But I can't get no satisfaction. Sometimes you get what you need. But that almost sounds like a consolation prize. I'm a highly competitive person and there's nothing I hate more than the trophy for second place. There, I said it. Second place is first loser. (laughs) I hate partaking in any activity where I don't have a chance of winning. What's the point? But I've come to learn that enjoying the moment and enjoying the ride is better than winning. And yet, if, if it turned out in life that you could never find that happiness you're looking for but at least every once in a while you can get what you need. No wonder so many people in that culture drug themselves so they don't have to think about that depressing truth or they take their own life. Between the choice of I'll never feel satisfied and happy and, well, sometimes you get your needs taken care of. I I see why they're like, no. I'll take the option that makes the quest for happiness go away. 
And that's where we come in as Christians because we have a better solution than taking your life. It's giving your life to Jesus Christ. And then that insatiable desire for happiness will finally be met. Or that God-shaped hole in your heart, like we like to say, will finally be met. What if God is happy and He desires for us to be happy? Blaise Pascal said, What else does this longing and helplessness proclaim? If you have this emptiness and this desire to find happiness in your heart, where did that come from? As Christians, we say everything in there, God put in there. Especially this, this one thing that is common to every human being on the planet. If we have this desire for happiness, then certainly... God must have put it in there. Now, God didn't put in the desire to find happiness in other things apart from God. But for us to counsel other people and evangelize people by saying, your problem is you want to be happy all the time, and that's just not what God wants for you, isn't going to get us anywhere. And it certainly doesn't bring God any glory. He's no cosmic killjoy. God's the happiest being in the universe. Amen? And I want a piece of that. In fact, I want more than a piece. I want all of it. Don't you? You can have all of it through faith in Christ, His atoning work on the cross, and the love He offers you. But you have to recognize that that is the greatest happiness. Once you're convinced of that, you're off to the races in your Christian walk. But as long as you're saying, I know that's the right answer in Sunday school, but deep down, there's got to be something better, then you'll be one of those people who say, I tried Christianity and it didn't deliver. No, you didn't try Christianity. You, you, you tried it on paper. You never tried it in your heart. He says... What does this mean but that there was once in each person a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? We try to fill this in vain with everything around us, seeking in things that are not there the help we cannot find in those that are there. Yet none can change things because this infinite abyss can only be filled with something that is infinite and unchanging. In other words, by God Himself. God alone is our true good. Or we might say God alone is our true happiness. Randy Alcorn says, Based on the books I've read, sermons I've heard, and conversations I've had, I'm convinced that many Christians believe our desire for happiness was birthed in humankind's fall. Like this quest for happiness is a result of the fall of man and somehow getting back into a right relationship with God means getting rid of our desire for happiness. That's hard to sign up for. But what if our desire for happiness comes from God? What if He wired His image bearers for happiness before sin entered the world? In other words, the fall didn't generate the human longing for happiness. It derailed and misdirected it. That's something I can wrap my mind around. That's something I can preach. I can go to people now. It's so much harder to evangelize people by saying, You filthy, wretched sinner, turn or burn. And then what? Well, then you just won't go to hell. 
That sounds like hell. Where's the happiness? Other people evangelize by leaving out the sin and the hell. God wants you to have your best life right now. Make Jesus your Savior. But don't tell Him to make Jesus your Lord. Making Him your Lord is what brings the happiness. Being our own Lord has only brought us misery. Temporary fleeting happiness that never lasts and fills, makes us feel emptier and emptier and tempts us to find happiness in things that God has definitely said will bring us misery and God's wrath. Most people don't start out pursuing sin to find happiness. They start with all the things that we think will bring happiness. And when those things disappoint, they move on to more and more twisted and perverted things until we look at their life and say, what happened? But it never starts there. It starts with, I'm pursuing happiness, and all the things people told me would bring me happiness didn't, so I moved on. And this is exactly what Psalm 1 goes on to describe. Blessed is the man, again, who doesn't consult the wicked or sit in the seat of scoffers. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. It's talking about our life now and our eternal life. It has both in view. And boy, after coming off of a drought, we understand how important it is to be planted near streams of water. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Look at the picture here, this agrarian picture. Yes, the wicked do grow, but they won't stand in the judgment. And their happiness is like chaff that's blown away in the wind. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we get to the life of David, and when we look at his early life, here's a man who's obsessed with God and God's word and God's glory and God's great name, and I think he's the happiest person I've ever seen in the Bible. So what happened the night that he sinned with Bathsheba? He abandoned all the things that he'd written about, all the things he believed to be true, and because he's a sinner, just like you and I, was convinced in that moment that somehow a night with Bathsheba would make me happy. His unhappiness was because he ceased to do the things that God said would bring him happiness. Why wasn't he out leading God's people? Why wasn't he out shepherding God's people? He was sitting at home having a pity party. Woe is me. I'm unhappy. Everyone's abandoned me. My wife despises me in her heart. I'm getting old. People are on to bigger and better and younger and stronger. Who knows? But aren't these the things that are common to all of us? And he convinced himself that the very thing God said was sinful and would bring death would bring him life. And boy, did it bring death. Literally. Death to his reputation and death to his relationships and, and literal death with Uriah. Death of his son, 
that he had with Bathsheba. And worst of all, death in his relationship with God. And he writes that psalm where he talks about how depressed he was and there was no life in his bones. And he was afraid God would remove his Holy Spirit from him and turn his face from him and remove his blessing. And he realized, that's the source of all my happiness. What have I done? How do I get back to being the blessed man? If the blessed man's the one that consults the Word of God and meditates on it, on it and obeys it, what happens if I took the other path? I, I can't go back to that path now. I mean, that was the theology of the day. We need to be perfect for God to be happy with us. What happens if you blow it? And then the light of God's grace, the glorious truth that God forgives sinners when they humble themselves before God and ask for His mercy. The, the balm, the medicine He was looking for that restored His joy. Restore the joy of my salvation. How blessed or happy, Psalm 32, is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed, how happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, he used to say how blessed is the man that doesn't commit sin. But what happens when you do? How blessed, how happy is the man that God... God doesn't say... Sin? What sin? I never saw that. God says, I saw that. I'm offended by it. But I will cover it with my grace. And in whose spirit there's no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. How depressing it is to be mired in sin, especially the sin of pursuing something other than God for your happiness. And it's a cruel, ironic, terrible quicksand to be trapped in. You're sinking farther and farther into unhappiness and depression, and you think that the answer is for you to dwell more and more on your unhappiness and how much you deserve to be happy. And it turns out that the solution is to get your mind off of yourself and your unhappiness and back onto God and other people, which is the last thing you want to think about when you're unhappy. Say, well, when I feel happy, I'll I'll go back to serving God and serving others. But I just don't feel like it right now. Woe is me. And the solution is to do what you know is true because God says it's truth and will bring you the happiness you look for even if your feelings and your flesh are telling you the opposite. And so Jesus comes to bring us the ultimate happiness, which can only be found in union with God, and because of our sin, we're separated from God. He came to bring us happiness. So are you looking for happiness in 2016? Listen to the words of Jesus. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the gentle, for they shall inherit the the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Happy are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And you're like, this doesn't sound like the recipe for happiness. Are you going to trust you or trust Jesus for your happiness? That's what it comes down to. Will you take the route of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and trust in yourself for your own happiness? Or will you trust in the person who made you, loves you, and defines happiness, and knows what true happiness is and where it is to be found? And he says, mourning over your search for happiness apart from God is the ticket to finding true happiness. Mourning over your sinful desire to find happiness apart from God is the ticket to the ultimate happiness you are looking for. Because then and only then will God then offer you that grace and forgiveness and welcome you with loving arms like the prodigal son into the family, not to be a slave, but to throw you a party, put a royal robe on you and a royal ring, sandals on your feet, and say, what once was lost is now found. Let's be happy and celebrate. Amen? Amen. God, thank you for being a happy God. We don't fully understand how your righteous wrath coexists with your happiness, but we trust that it can and does. Thank you for taking care of that righteous wrath on the cross, pouring it out on your own Son so that you can be happy and satisfied with us and thus we can be happy and satisfied knowing we are forgiven children of God. May we have a happy new year and spread the happiness of the gospel to all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Happy new year.